20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20minhistory. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The decision to use the atomic bomb brought death to over a hundred thousand Japanese. But this deliberate, premeditated destruction was our least abhorrent choice. The destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki put an end to the Japanese war. Henry Stimson, 1947 What you've just heard is perhaps the most enduring and yet also one of the most flawed historical interpretations in the United States, a narrative which has for years benefited from tacit acceptance in popular discourse, an argument shielded from significant criticism for far too long. On today's episode, I'd like us to begin our new season by holding these oft-repeated claims up to scholarly scrutiny. Did dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki actually force Japan to surrender? Did it save the lives of millions of Americans? Was it really the least abhorrent choice? I'm David A. Bradbury, and welcome back to 20-Minute History, Season 2. Episode 1 Incidental Slaughter If you were to walk into any American high school, pick out a random student, and ask them what happened on August 6th and 9th, 1945, odds are they'll know exactly what you're talking about. In all likelihood, they'll tell you that in an effort to bring an armistice to World War II's Pacific Theater, the United States broke out its new atomic arsenal and completely demolished two Japanese cities, Hiroshima on the 6th and Nagasaki on the 9th. One day later, on August 10th, Emperor Hirohito announced Japan's surrender, but sadly the damage had already been done. Tens of thousands of innocent civilians died instantly, 
Several hundred thousand more suffered severe injuries, burns, and radioactive poisoning, some of which proved lethal in the coming weeks and months. Furthermore, the vast majority of each city's infrastructure had been obliterated, and those that survived frequently found themselves alone and homeless. It would seem to this humble host that no matter how you spin it, the new reality faced by Japanese citizens in the wake of the atomic bombings was deeply, unspeakably harrowing. And yet, in spite of all those grim details, our student would also likely argue that these nuclear attacks were not entirely unjustified. Sure, they might feel a nagging sense of discomfort over how easily and quickly the U.S. leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but nonetheless, they'd claim that President Truman may have actually had good reasons for dropping the bombs. Now, what exactly those reasons are depends somewhat on who you're talking to, but in general, most justifications boil down to three primary claims. Number one. In spite of many high-casualty battles waged in the early months of 1945, Japan was nowhere near defeat and still relentlessly pursuing all-out victory. Number two, besides dropping the bomb, Truman's only other option to secure victory involved a mainland invasion which his top generals warned him could entail hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of American casualties. And perhaps most critically, number three, Dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki swiftly and decisively ended the Pacific War without the need for a land invasion. This is what's sometimes called the orthodox historical perspective. And make no mistake, our student is certainly not alone in finding it credible. In fact, this thesis has ostensibly remained foremost in the American imagination for generations, and it isn't exactly difficult to imagine why that is either. Considering the gruesome nature of the Trinity bomb, it seems only natural that many people would find comfort in a justified explanation for its use. But that which is comfortable is not necessarily rational, and in this case I personally find that the tenets of the orthodox position are not adequately supported by evidence. On the contrary, I think it probable that as we dive deeper into the historical record, you'll be left with the same chilling thought that I, along with many historians, have had. In addition to showing little regard for the value of human life, the nuclear destruction of two Japanese cities was neither necessary nor even ultimately consequential to the end of World War II. To understand why I think that is, we're going to attempt to debunk each of the three claims outlined above, beginning with the idea that in the summer of 1945, Japan was continuously refusing to surrender, instead willfully engaging in total war and actively pushing its enemy to raise the white flag. If we go back in time, say, oh, 75 years or so, I think you'll see that such a claim could not be further from the truth. Let's start here. May 8th, 1945. Allied commanders received the news they've been awaiting for almost six years. Berlin has fallen. The Third Reich has been defeated. Victory in Europe is declared. There was no missing the enthusiasm emanating around the globe, from San Francisco to Stratford to Stalingrad. But in Washington, D.C., 
the mood was strikingly different. No doubt there was some rejoicing in the White House that day, but whatever celebration did take place was probably overshadowed by the creeping reality that America's work was not yet complete. Ever since the date which will live in infamy, the United States had been fighting a brutal, costly war with the Empire of Japan. And though the outcome of decisive battles continued to swing in their favor, the strategy of island hopping to reach the mainland proved astonishingly costly. Take Iwo Jima, an island with a native population of zero, 31,000 American casualties. Okinawa, roughly the land area of New York City, 48,000 American casualties. Notwithstanding its strategic advantages, leapfrogging carried with it a high military price tag. One could therefore be forgiven for believing that inflicting such high casualty numbers indicated surprising strength, resilience, and an unwavering commitment to victory on the part of the Japanese Empire, but that's simply not the case. In fact, by the summer of 1945, for all intents and purposes, Japan had lost the war. If you're caught off guard by this claim, just let me provide you with some evidence in support of it. In the aerial department, Japan had only 4,000 poorly equipped fighter planes on hand by the spring of 1945. This meant that their only significant means to inflict damage on the U.S. Air Force were via kamikaze missions, and unfortunately, their hit rate was shockingly low just below 20%. And in the naval department, the Japanese fleet had been decimated to the point where it boasted exactly zero aircraft carriers. By no means was it in any position to threaten the U.S. naval blockades surrounding the island, and as a result, imports of oil, coal, and rubber were quickly exhausted. Domestic production rates hit record lows. It would seem that no further information is necessary to conclude that this is not the picture of a country that is well-equipped to fight, let alone win, a total war. Now, knowing this, you may be wondering, well, if defeat was inevitable, then why in hell did Japan keep fighting? A completely reasonable question. And to put the answer simply, doing so was less about victory and more about survival. Consider this scenario, if you will. The distressing state of Japan's armed forces was known not only to them, but also to their foes. Spurred on by this knowledge, among other things, the United States was strongly inclined to accept nothing less than unconditional surrender, meaning that unless Japan laid down their arms, surrendered all conquered territory, and, crucially, dismantled their military infrastructure, their surrender would not be accepted. And that leads us to a seemingly unbreakable impasse. You see, Emperor Hirohito, generally viewed by the Japanese public as a deity incarnate, also held the title of Supreme Commander of the Japanese Imperial Forces. Officials therefore broadly interpreted these terms to mean that America intended to remove their emperor. Is it any wonder, then, that the army continued to fight long after victory was within reach? No, not at all. Finding their very way of life under threat of complete destruction, they could do little else but prolong the battle in the hopes that the U.S. would eventually soften their terms. But unfortunately, at this point, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that with a revolutionary new weapon at his disposal, the American commander-in-chief had no intention of quitting while he was ahead. We'll be right back. 
wars and love affairs, sieges and betrayals, curses and miracles. History is the story of people, the challenges they faced, the conditions they lived under, and the decisions they made. It's the contrasting story of brute strength and the intervention of divine grace. History, in short, is both the story and the tool of thugs and miracles. Join me, Benjamin Bernier, as we look back at 1,400 years of history in France, from the fall of the Western Roman Empire to the fall of the guillotine. Meet the pagans left behind by Rome, the bishops martyred to convert them, the Islamic armies and the Danish invaders looking to conquer them, the kings who rose to lead, and the queens who guided and controlled these kings. All of this and more is available right now on the Thugs and Miracles podcast. All right, thanks for listening. We now return you back to your original, outstanding, That's Not Canon production. Let us now shift our focus from Japan to America as we confront the second tenet of the Orthodox view, that Truman had to drop the bombs lest he send hundreds of thousands of Americans to perish in a mainland invasion. To begin with, no one in Truman's war room ever estimated casualty numbers in the hundreds of thousands or millions were they to proceed. Such devastating statistics would have amounted to every single American soldier being killed or wounded in the attack. In actuality, anticipated casualties were much closer in comparison to Okinawa and Iwo Jima. A devastating loss of human life, sure, but nowhere near the figures so often cited today. And that's just the beginning of this argument's problems. The real death blow is the underlying false dichotomy that Truman could either drop the bomb or invade Japan. Here are just a few other options we know the War Department considered and could have reasonably pursued if they had wanted to. They could have invaded the mainland first and then dropped the bomb if the former action proved unsuccessful. They could have followed that same path except reversed. They could have dropped the bomb on an uninhabited area and simply threatened to unleash it on a city if Japan refused to quit. And if they had been willing to abandon unconditional surrender, they could have just accepted the peace terms offered by their foes on July 26th, of which the sole condition was the retention of the emperor. And mind you, this is a condition which America would eventually concede after the war's conclusion. Now, in fairness, Orthodox proponents would argue that such a concession by President Truman would have been extremely politically unpopular, a fact which is unsurprising given the fervent and widespread racial animosity toward Japanese people at this time. But in all honesty, I find it difficult to take this argument seriously when the president's choices were a conditional surrender and condemning hundreds of thousands of people to an agonizing death. Bottom line, dropping the bombs was not inevitable. America had other options, including one more which I've yet to mention, and which impels us to ultimately reject the final claim, that nuclear destruction forced Japan's capitulation. That option being, America could have just waited for the Soviet Union to fulfill their promise to invade Manchuria. Indeed, recent re-examinations of the available evidence tend to agree that the Russian attack vastly outweighed the nuclear strikes in terms of influencing surrender. And when you think about it, this view makes total sense. 
Unlike those of us living today, Japanese officials had no way of knowing how devastating these weapons really were, and so they had no reason to treat them any differently from, say, the 1945 firebombing of Tokyo. This would certainly help to explain why the Japanese army continued to fight in the days after the bombs dropped, and also why Imperial commanders didn't even bother to summon an emergency meeting in response. To them... The nuclear attacks were simply another demonstration of America's infuriating disregard for civilian life. And that just leaves us with one last nagging question. If the A-bombs were inconsequential, why did the Japanese take the Soviet land invasion so seriously? For an answer there, take this from Ward Wilson, and I quote, Japan hoped to win better terms than simple surrender through diplomacy or battle. Research in the last 20 years has made clear that these were the only two options. End quote. Short of getting the Americans to acquiesce, an avenue which clearly wasn't working, Japan's last shot was to convince the Soviet Union to intervene for them and bring the Americans to the negotiation table. One can only imagine, then, the crushing heartbreak felt at the highest levels of the Japanese military when the Russian army steamrolled their forces in northeast China. Their only remaining chance at a more favorable peace instantly dissipated, thereby compelling Emperor Hirohito to send the troops a written order to lay down their arms. His declaration read, in part, quote, Now that the Soviet Union has entered the war, to continue under the present conditions would only result in further useless damage and eventually endanger the very foundation of the empire's existence, end quote. The obliteration of Hiroshima and Nagasaki did not even receive a passing mention. The subject of war is an unusually difficult one, as it touches upon an arena in which the accepted rules of society do not apply, in which murder, rape, and the rest of mankind's most unspeakable atrocities are somewhat acceptable. Admittedly, Henry Stimson had it right, in a way. Every choice his country could have made was abhorrent, and would have involved an unfathomable amount of death. But to say that the War Department made the right choice, or a fair choice, or even the least abhorrent choice, I'm sorry, but when their enemy was effectively defeated, when there were other, more effective options, and when the path they chose involved the needless, heartless deaths of nearly 200,000 civilians, they simply lose the right to say they made the best choice available. And look, perhaps some of you out there are listening to this and scoffing, even laughing aloud at how I, in my comfortable office chair, could look back on this intensely complicated decision and presume to know how to handle it any better. Who am I, one might ask, to pass moral judgment on them? And while I see your point, the truth is, this theory is more than just a judgment. And sure, it is partially about that. But it is much more about posing insightful inquiries about our past, the answers to which may very well impact the course of humanity. Think about it. If this particular interpretation of events is valid, in what ways, if any, should we change our approach to nuclear politics in Russia? 
in Iran, in North Korea? Are threats of nuclear warfare as effective as we once thought? What factors may have motivated our forefathers to unleash the universe's most powerful weapon on unsuspecting bystanders? And are we in significant danger of repeating their mistake? These are undoubtedly thorny questions, but all of them deserve a thoughtful answer, because this is more than a historical theory. This is how we frame our present and our future. Thank you for listening to this installment of 20 Minute History. Sorry this season took so long to prepare, and also that today's episode was probably quite difficult to listen to. I promise that lighter content is on the way. In the meantime, if you like our show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts, or following our social media accounts at 20minhistory. And if you really enjoy our work, you can consider making a monetary contribution on Patreon or Acast. Research for today's episode comes from the works of Paul Hamm, Ward Wilson, Kenneth Pyle, and A.N. Ferraru, to whom I extend my utmost gratitude. And be sure to join us next week when we'll be examining a plot best described as a million ways to die in Cuba. Until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning, lest you know what repeats itself. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.